This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. It's the great Christmas tradition here at the Simi Sarah Show. Christmas stories as read by some of your favorite CKNW personalities. And here with our first story on the show today is our own Bruce Allen with the Dr. Seuss classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Hi, this is Bruce Allen. I guess from my uh, persona on Reality Check, the people at CKNW in their wisdom thought that I should be reading How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So here we go. Mr. Grinch, you're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why, no one quite knows the reason. It could be that his head wasn't screwed on quite right, it could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve hating the Who's staring down from his cave with a sour, grinchy frown at the warm-lighted windows below in the town. For he knew every who down in Whoville beneath was busy now, hanging a mistletoe wreath. And they're hanging their stockings, he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming, I must find a way to keep Christmas from coming. For tomorrow he knew all the who girls and boys would wake up bright and early, and they'd rush for their toys. And then, oh, the noise, oh, the noise, 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 noise. That's one thing he hated, the noise, noise, noise. Then the Who's, young and old, would sit down to a feast. And they'd feast, and they'd feast, and they'd feast, feast, feast. They would start on Who pudding and rare Who roast beast, which was something the Grinch couldn't stand in the least. And then they'd do something he liked least of all. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, would stand close together with Christmas bells ringing. They'd stand hand in hand, and the Who's would start singing. And they'd sing, and they'd sing, and they'd sing, sing, sing. Trim up the tree with Christmas stuff, a jingle ball and And the more the Grinch thought of the Who Christmas sing, the more the Grinch thought, I must stop this whole thing. Why, for 53 years I put up with this now. I must stop Christmas from coming. But how? Then he got an idea. An awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. I know just what to do, the Grinch laughed in his throat. And he made a quick Santa Claus hat and a coat. Then he chuckled and clucked. What a great Grinchy trick. With this coat and this hat, I'll look just like St. Nick. All I need is a reindeer. The Grinch looked around. But since reindeer are scarce, there was none to be found. Did that stop the old Grinch? No. The Grinch simply said, If I can't find a reindeer, I'll make one instead. So he called his dog Max. Then he took some red thread, and he tied a big horn to the top of his head. Then he loaded some bags and some empty old sacks on a ramshackle sleigh, and he hitched up old Max. Then the Grinch said, Giddy up! And the sleigh started down towards the homes where the Who's lay a snooze in their town. All their windows were dark. Quiet snow filled the air. All the Who's were all dreaming, sweet dreams without care. 
when he came to the first house in the square. This is stop number one, the old Grinchy Claws hissed, and he climbed to the roof, empty bags in his fist. Then he slid down the chimney, a rather tight pinch. But if Santa could do it, then so could the Grinch. He got stuck only once, for a moment or two. Then he stuck his head out of the fireplace flue, where the little who stockings all hung in a row. These stockings, he grinned, are the first things to go. Then he slivered and slunk with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room, and he took every present, pop guns and bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorn and plums. Then he stuffed them in bags. Then the Grinch very nimbly stuffed all the bags one by one up the chimney. Then he slunk to the ice box. He took the Who's Feast. He took the Who Pudding. He took the Roast Beast. He cleaned out that ice box as quick as a flash. Why, that Grinch even took their last can of Who Hash. Then he stuffed all the food up the chimney with glee. And now, grinned the Grinch, I will stuff up the tree. And the Grinch grabbed the tree, and he started to shove. When he heard a small sound, like the coo of a dove. He turned around fast, and he saw a small Who. Little Cindy Lou Who, who is not more than two. The Grinch had been caught by this little Who daughter, who'd got out of bed for a cup of cold water. She stared at the Grinch and said, Santa Claus, why? Why are you taking our Christmas tree? Why? But you know, that old Grinch was so smart and so slick, he thought up a lie and he thought it up quick. Why, my little sweet tot, the fake Daddy Claus lied. There's a light on this tree that won't light on one side. So I'm taking it home to my workshop, my dear. I'll fix it up there, and I'll bring it back here. And his fib fooled the child. Then he patted her head, and he got her a drink, and he sent her to bed. And when Cindy Lou Who went to bed with her cup, he went up the chimney and stuffed the tree up. Then the last thing he took was the log for their fire. Then he went up the chimney himself, that old liar. On their walls he left nothing but hooks and some wire, and one speck of food. There he left in the house was a crumb that was even too small for a mouse. Then he did the same thing to other Who's houses, leaving crumbs much too small for the other Who's mouses. It was quarter past dawn, all the Who's still abed, all the Who's still a snooze, when he packed up his sled, packed it up with their presents, the ribbons, the wrappings, the tags and the tinsel, the trimmings, the trappings. 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crubbit, he rode to the tip top to dump it. Poo poo to the Who's, he was grinchishly humming, they're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open for a minute or two. Then all the Who's down in Whoville will cry, Oh, boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, and then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, this sounded merry. It couldn't be so. But it was Mary, Barry. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes, then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. Welcome, welcome, He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming, it came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till this puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. 
Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And the minute his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light, and he brought back the toys and the food and the feast, and he, he himself, the Grinch carved the roast beast. And here's the very talented Vancouver actor Christopher Gaze reading another classic, A Christmas Carol. Hello everyone, my name's Christopher Gaze. I bring Christmas greetings from all of us at Barn on the Beach to all of you. God bless us, everyone. Which leads us to Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol and this is the final stave. Raising his pale arm, the ghost of Christmas yet to come drew Scrooge to a dismal, wretched, ruinous churchyard. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed his spectral fingers down to one cracked and overgrown stone. Before I draw nearer, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of the things that only may be? Even still the ghost pointed downward to the grave. Oh, men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. But the spirit was immovable as ever, its stance implacable. Scrooge crept towards the stone, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name. Ebenezer Scrooge. Falling upon it, he cried, No, spirit, oh, no, no, spirit, hear me. I'm not the man I was. Why show me this if I'm past all hope? Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will honor Christmas in my heart, and I will try to keep it all the year I will live in the past the present and the future the spirits of all three shall strive within me I will not shut out the lessons that they teach oh tell me I may sponge away the writing on this stone I'm not the man I was I am not the man I was holding up his hands in one last prayer he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress it shrunk collapsed and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. He heard the churches ringing out the lustiest peals he'd ever heard and running to the window, he opened it. He put out his head, no fog, no mist, no night, clear, bright, golden day. What's today? cried Scrooge, calling downward to a boy in Sunday clothes. Eh? What's today, my fine fellow? Today? Why, it's Christmas Day. Christmas Day. 
haven't missed it. My fine fellow. Yes? Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one? At the corner? I should hope I did. Well, <laughs> an intelligent boy. <laughs> A remarkable boy. Do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? The big one. What? The one as big as me? <laughs> what a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, yes, my buck. It's hanging there now. Is it? Well, go and get it. What? No, no, no. I'm in earnest. Tell the poulterer to bring it here that I may give them the direction where to take it. Come back with a man and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in less than five minutes and I'll give you a half a crown. The boy was off like a shot. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's. He shan't know who sends it. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. The door was opened by a servant girl, whose gentle smile encouraged the halting Scrooge. And from behind the closed door of the drawing room could be heard sounds of a piano and laughter. Scrooge silently handed the girl his coat and hat and he walked towards the door. As he entered the room, the joviality fell away. In silence, Scrooge walked to where his nephew and his wife were seated. Fred sprang up and grasped his hand. Uncle Ebenezer, he could only say. His face lit up with pleasure. Fred's wife remained seated, almost afraid. But her look softened as Scrooge smiled shyly and unused to the tenderness that flowed through him. He said, Can you forgive a pig-headed old man for having no eyes to see with, nor ears to hear with all these years? Oh yes, dear uncle, she replied, and her eyes filled with tears. You've made Fred so happy. At a signal from one of the guests, the piano player struck up a vigorous polka and the whole company swept into a dance. Scrooge, the unsteady but enthusiastic partner of his nephew's dear wife. Scrooge was early at the office the next morning. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he'd set his heart on. And he did it. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. Bob was a full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the office and when he finally arrived he came in so quietly hoping that Scrooge would not hear him and he was on his stool in a jiffy driving away with his pen as if he was trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello there, growled Scrooge in his accustomed voice or as near as he could pretend it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? Oh, I, I, I'm very sorry, sir. I am. Uh, <laughs> I am behind my time. Yes, indeed you are. Step this way, if you please, Mr. Cratchit. 
It's only once a year, sir. It shan't be repeated. I was, uh, <coughs> I was uh, making rather merry yesterday, sir. Oh, I'll tell you what, my friend. I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, Scrooge paused for more fearsome effect. And therefore, I'm going to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to a heavy ruler. Scrooge's harsh demeanour fell away, and the reform man smiled gently. No, no, Bob, I haven't taken leave of my senses. I've come to them. A Merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I've given you for many a year. Yes, I'll raise your salary. "'and I'll help you to raise that family of yours "'if you'll only let me. "'We'll discuss it later over a bowl of hot punch, "'and in the meantime, put some more coal on the fire before you, "'dot another I and cross another T, "'and go out and, and, and buy a new coal scuttle. "'You go, you go and do that, Bob Cratchit.' "'Scrooge was better than his word.' He did it all, and infinitely more, and to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. All right, this is Mike Smith in for Simi. Time for another Christmas story. Now, here's our own Jill Bennett with the Nutcracker. Hi there and Merry Christmas. This is Jill Bennett, host of the Weekend Morning News here on CKNW. I'm also a reporter over at Global News, and I am happy to bring you my story today. Here is The Nutcracker. On Christmas Eve, Dr. Stahlbaum's children were not allowed in the family parlor. Fritz and Marie sat together and waited. Fritz said he had seen Godfather Drosselmeyer. At that, Marie clapped her hands. Oh, what do you think Godfather made for us? Fritz said it was a fortress. No, Marie interrupted. It's a garden with a big lake. He can't make a garden, said Fritz. Then a bell rang and the doors flew open. Come in, dear children, Papa said. The children's eyes sparkled. Marie cried out and Fritz took two great jumps in the air. Marie discovered a dress hanging on the tree. It's beautiful, she cried. Fritz galloped around the table with the horse he had found and reviewed his new squadron of soldiers. Just then, the bell rang again. Knowing that Godfather Drosselmeyer would be unveiling his present, the children ran to the table. The screen that had hidden it was taken away. The children saw a magnificent castle with dozens of windows and golden towers. Chimes played as tiny ladies and gentlemen strolled around the rooms. It's absolutely wonderful, Marie cheered. Then Marie spotted another gift that her brother hadn't noticed. It was a little man. Oh, father, what is this, Marie asked. 
Dear child, said Dr. Stahlbaum, our friend here cracks nuts with his teeth. Dr. Stahlbaum lifted the nutcracker's cloak. Its mouth opened, revealing two rows of teeth. Marie put in a nut, and the little man bit it in two. Fritz ran over to his sister. He chose the biggest nut, and then with a crack, three teeth fell out of the nutcracker's mouth. Poor nutcracker, Marie cried. Some nutcracker, Fritz laughed. Marie carefully bandaged his wounded mouth. Then she rocked him in her arms. As soon as Marie was alone, she gently picked the nutcracker up and placed him in a glass cabinet. She was going to bed when she heard shuffling. The clock whirred 12 times. Then she heard squeaking all around her, followed by the sound of marching. Soon Marie saw mice all over the room. The army of rodents formed ranks. Suddenly, seven mouse heads with seven crowns rose up, squeaking and squealing. This enormous mouse was hailed by the entire army. Then the army set itself in motion, heading straight for the toy cabinet. At the same time, Marie saw a glow inside the cabinet. All at once, the nutcracker jumped. Sound the advance, the nutcracker cried. Drums played so loudly that the windows rattled. Then with a clatter, the boxes with Fritz's army of toy soldiers burst open. Soldiers formed ranks on the floor. The nutcracker shouted words of encouragement to the troops. Suddenly, guns were firing. The mice advanced. The nutcracker was trapped. He tried to jump over the ledge of the cabinet, but his legs were too short. In despair, he shouted, A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! The king of mice charged the nutcracker. Without thinking, Marie took off her shoe and flung it at the mouse king. At that moment, Marie felt a sharp pain and she fell to the floor. When Marie awoke from her sleep, she was in her own bed. Dr. Wendell Stern was beside her. She's awake, he said softly. Oh, mother, Marie whispered, have the mice gone away? Last night you fainted, said her mother. There was a battle between the dolls and the mice, Marie explained. Marie's father had a talk with the doctor. Marie had to stay in bed for a week. Then Godfather Drosselmeyer came to visit. I've brought you something, he told Marie. He reached into his pocket and took out the nutcracker whose lost teeth he had put back and whose broken jaw he had fixed. That night, Marie awoke to a strange rumbling. The king of mice stood on her nightstand. Give me your candy, he said, or I'll bite your nutcracker to pieces. The next night, Marie put her candy on the nightstand. By morning, it was gone. But the mouse king returned. Give me all your picture books. Give me a sword, the nutcracker said. Marie flung Fritz's sword around the nutcracker's waist. The next night, Marie heard clanging and opened the door. The nutcracker had not only defeated the mouse king, he had turned into a prince. The prince explained he was Godfather Drosselmeyer's nephew, and a spell had turned him into a nutcracker. When he defeated the mouse king, the spell was broken. Marie said the prince, come, follow me. Marie followed the prince to the cupboard in the hall. Inside, a ladder came down through the sleeve of a coat. Marie climbed the ladder and found herself in a meadow. This is a candy meadow, said the prince. The prince clapped his hands and several shepherds danced a charming ballet. The prince led Marie down Honey River. This is Gingerbread City, he said. The people here are happy but prone to toothaches. The swan-shaped gondola in which they rode soon carried Marie and the prince to a marvelous city. This, said the prince, is the capital. It was the most beautiful place Marie had ever seen.
Marie saw the castle with a hundred lofty towers. This is Marzipan Castle, said the prince. At that moment, the gates of the castle opened and out stepped four princesses. They led Marie to a room of colored crystal where they shared a mouth-watering meal. As they ate, the prince told her the history of their war against the Mouse King. As Marie listened to his story, she felt as though she were falling. When Marie awoke, she was in her bed. You've slept so long, her mother said. Mother, said Marie, you cannot imagine all of the places I saw last night. You've no time for dreams, her mother said. Your godfather's nephew is here. Marie was happy to see the prince again. In front of the toy cabinet, he went down on one knee and said, Marie, you saved my life on this very spot. When you are old enough, will you reign with me at Marzipan Castle? Of course, said Marie softly. And that is exactly what happened. Marie is queen of a country where wonderful things can be seen with the right eyes to see them. Time for more holiday stories now. Here's Willie Percy from Rock 101 with a very special folktale, Bone Button Borscht. Um, and today I'm going to read a, a book called Bone Button Borscht by Aubrey Davis. He's a Toronto author. And uh, the reason I selected this particular book is because it speaks to me of what I think Christmas is all about. I'm not particularly religious. I didn't go to church. Uh, and for me, Christmas wasn't, I mean, I knew the story about Jesus in the manger and all of that. But for me, Christmas was uh, summed up in about six words, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Um, and I would say goodwill towards people uh, in this day and age. But that was basically the message for me for Christmas. And this book, I think, uh, describes that. So Bone Button Borscht by Aubrey Davis, as read by me. One dark winter's night, a ragged little beggar hobbled along a lonely road. It was snowy and bitter cold, but in his head it was warm and rosy. He saw a blazing fireplace and a table loaded with bowls of borscht, noodle pudding, roast chicken, fruit, nuts, and a jug of wine. And his host was saying, More chicken, Mr. Beggar? And he was saying, Oh no, I couldn't eat another bite. Ah, there is nothing like being a beggar, he thought. Such good it brings out in people. They share, they give, and me? I get a little something too. It's perfect. The beggar reached the crest of a hill. He peered out through the driving snow into the night. So where's the town, he asked himself. There should be a town at the bottom of this hill, but I can't see it. And as he walked downhill, small, shadowy houses slowly took shape on his left and on his right. Fine, he thought. Now I see the town. But where are the lights? Where are the people? He knocked on a door. Please, a little food for a poor, starving beggar, he cried. A face appeared in the frosty window, then it vanished. There were footsteps, and then silence. The beggar went to another house and knocked. Please, help me. I'm hungry and cold. Go away, called a voice from within. Well, just let me in for a few minutes even. No, go away. So the beggar moved on from house to house and door to door. But no one would help him. What is wrong with these people, he wondered. He trudged further down the road. And suddenly, he spotted a thin line of light in the snow. 
He followed it to a crack in a doorway and pushed the door open. He went inside. It was a synagogue. Thank God for synagogues, he cried and rushed inside. As he warmed himself by the stove, he looked around the room. Suddenly, he spotted a man in the shadows. It was the synagogue caretaker, the shamus. Shalom, alechem. Peace be with you, called the beggar. The shamus didn't answer. Hmm, that's strange, thought the beggar. Then a glimmer crept into his eye, and the corners of his mouth turned up ever so slightly. He had an idea. He grabbed one of the bone buttons on his coat, and he tugged. Off came the button. Off came two more, and another, and another. Still, the shamus did not speak. But now he was looking at the beggar. And now he was curious. The beggar counted the buttons. There were five. Oy, if only I had one more button, he said. And the shamus didn't say anything. Oy, if only I had one more button. Still, the shamus was silent. Oy! If only I had one more button. Finally, the shaman spoke. Look, mister, I won't give you a button. Nobody in this town will give you a button. Why not? asked the beggar. Because we're poor, Mr. Beggar. We don't give to each other anymore. So why should we give even a button to a stranger? Why? asked the beggar. Because with one more button, I could make us a soup. I could make a nice hot borscht. That's ridiculous, scoffed the shamus. It's impossible. Nobody makes borscht from buttons. Mr. Shamus, said the beggar, I'm shocked. Haven't you ever heard of bone button borscht? Bone button borscht, asked the shamus. Let me explain, said the beggar. These buttons in my hand are very special. And with just one more button from you... I can make bone button borscht for the whole town. I can make you a miracle, Mr. Shamus. Naturally, the Shamus was very curious. All right, he cried. I'll get the button. And he ran to the door. Wait, called the beggar. I'll need bowls, uh, cups, a knife, a ladle, and a spoon. Oh, and a pot, maybe? The Shamus sped down the road to the tailor's door and knocked. Mendel, Mendel, give me a bone button, he cried. No, go away, shouted Mendel. No, Mendel, you don't understand. The button isn't for me, said the shamus. It's for the little beggar in the synagogue. He's going to make a miracle. With my bone button, asked Mendel. What's he going to do? Raise it from the dead? Teach it to sing, maybe? No, Mendel. He needs it for the borscht. He's going to make borscht from buttons. That's impossible, scoffed Mendel. Nobody can make borscht from buttons. Listen, Mendel said the shamus. Give me the button. What's it going to hurt? Maybe we'll have a miracle. All right, replied Mendel. I'll give you the button. But I want to come too. I want to see this miracle. So come, said the shamus. And they ran to the house next door and knocked. Lee, Lee, give us a wooden spoon, they cried. No, go away. Lee, it's not for us. It's for the little beggar in the synagogue. He's going to make a miracle. With my spoon, said Lee. What's he going to do? Use it to part the Red Sea? Teach it to dance, maybe? No, Lee, he needs it for the borscht. He's going to make borscht from buttons. That's impossible, scoffed Lee. Look, Lee, give us the spoon. What's it going to hurt? Maybe we'll have a miracle. All right, said Lee. But I want to come. I want to see this miracle. So come, said the shamus and the tailor. 
and my family too, she added. So bring them, they said. So Lee, her family, and Mendel and the Shamus marched down the street, and they banged on doors, and they begged and they borrowed cups and bowls, a ladle, a knife, and a huge soup pot. And along with all these things, the crowd grew. As it chattered its way up the street towards the synagogue, others came to their windows and doors. Where are you going? they asked. What are you doing with that pot? And the people in the street replied, There's some beggar in the synagogue who says he can make borscht from buttons. That's impossible, shouted the people in the houses. But they were curious. So they grabbed their hats and coats, and they joined the others. And by the time the shamus reached the synagogue, the whole town was with him. The people crammed themselves inside. And the beggar looked up and cried, Shalom! Alachem! Peace be with you! There was a long silence. And then someone called out, So, Mr. Miracle Man, make us a miracle! You want a miracle? the beggar asked. I'll give you a miracle. Pot! he cried. And they put the pot on the stove. Water! They poured water. Button! And they gave him the button. Plunk, plunk, plunk. The beggar dropped in all the bone buttons. And he picked up the wooden spoon and he stirred. And when the pot began to steam and bubble, he spooned out some water and he took a sniff. <laughs> Not bad, he said. <laughs> but it could be better. What could make it better? asked the people. Mm, a little sugar, a little salt, a little pepper. That could make it better, replied the beggar. So they brought him sugar and salt and pepper, and he sprinkled them into the pot, and he stirred. Then he took another sniff. Not bad, he said, but it could be better. What could make it better? asked the people. Have you got any pickle juice? That could make it better, replied the beggar. So they brought him pickle juice, and he poured it into the pot, and the beggar stirred, and then he stopped. He looked at the people. He looked at the pot. He looked at the people again. Then he shook his head. You've got problems, Mr. Beggar? asked the shamus. The beggar frowned. Wait, said the shamus, and he ran to a cupboard and brought back a bulb of garlic. Would this help, Mr. Beggar? he asked. Why not? laughed the beggar. Mr. Beggar, I've got some carrots, someone said, and I've got beets, I've got onions, I've got beans. Would these help, Mr. Beggar? they asked. Well, they wouldn't hurt, laughed the beggar. So the people ran off, and they returned with their arms full of vegetables. The beggar sliced them all. He diced, he chopped, he shredded, and then he dumped them into the bubbling pot, and he stirred that borscht round and round. Do you know what we have here? asked the beggar. We have a beautiful borscht. That's what we have. A very tasty borscht. Now, some people say... A little bit of cabbage really brings out the flavor. But I say, keep it simple. Who needs cabbage for borscht? And at the back of the synagogue, a woman waved her arms. Mr. Beggar! Mr. Beggar, you want cabbage? I've got cabbage, Mr. Beggar! And before he could reply, the woman was gone. She returned with a sack full of cabbages and handed it to the beggar. He looked at the cabbages. He looked at the people. Then he shrugged his shoulders and he began to chop. And he chopped and chopped until every last cabbage had been added to the borscht. The people watched the steam rise from the pot. They listened to the bubbling borscht. They smelled the rich, sweet, sour aroma as it filled the synagogue. Bellies rumbled, mouths watered, 
and everyone pressed in closer when the beggar finally labeled some borscht into a cup. It was deep red and thick with vegetables. He blew on it. He blessed it. And then he dipped his spoon in and he tasted it. So, Mr. Beggar, how does it taste? The beggar smiled. Not bad. Who wants to try some? And everyone in the room rushed forward and they snatched cups and they grabbed bowls. Borscht! 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 They chanted. The beggar began patiently ladling steaming hot borscht into every bowl and every cup. And soon, everybody was sipping and slurping borscht. And then the people raised their arms and they rolled their eyes toward heaven and they cried out, Delicious! Perfectly delicious! This is the best borscht we've ever tasted! The little beggar did it! He made borscht out of buttons! It's a miracle! And then, like magic, bread appeared and boiled potatoes and roast chicken and wine. The people ate and they laughed and they laughed and they ate. And then they brought out accordions and violins and they sang and they danced for hour after delightful hour. And when the last slurp of borscht was slurped, and the last dance danced, and the last song sung, the shamus invited the beggar to spend the night at his house. And the next night, another family took him in, and then another, and then another. One day, the beggar gathered the townsfolk together, and he said goodbye. Well, please don't go, they begged. Ah, I must, he said. But your buttons, how can we make borscht without your magic bone buttons? And how can I fasten my coat without buttons? asked the beggar. How can I keep warm without my buttons? So they traded with the beggar. They gave him brass buttons and kept the bone buttons. Then the beggar left, and they never saw him again. The years passed, and one by one the beggar's bone buttons were lost. But it is a strange thing, a wonder, perhaps. The townsfolk learned they didn't really need the buttons. They learned to make borscht without the bone buttons. And they learned to help one another without borscht, even in hard times. That was the real miracle the beggar left behind. And for me, that's the spirit of Christmas. Hey, as we continue having our special Christmas Eve edition of the show. And throughout the show, you've heard a lot of great Christmas stories from some of your favorite CKNW personalities. So here's another one now. It's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, read by the one and only Drex. Enjoy. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, written by Robert L. May. "'Twas the day before Christmas, and all through the hills, the reindeer were playing, enjoying the spills." of skating and coasting and climbing the willows and hopscotch and leapfrog protected by pillows. While every so often they'd stop to call names at one little deer not allowed in their games. Ha ha, look at Rudolph. His nose is a sight. It's red as a beet, twice as big, twice as bright. While Rudolph just wept, what else could he do? He knew that the things they were saying were true. In daylight it dazzled, imagine that! At nighttime it glowed like the eyes of a cat. And putting dirt on it just made it look muddy. Oh boy, was he mad when they nicknamed him Ruddy. Although he was lonesome, he always was good, obeying his parents as good reindeer should. 
That's why, on this day, Rudolph almost felt playful. He hoped that from Santa, soon driving a sleighful of presents and candy dollies and toys for good little animals, good girls and boys. He'd get just as much, and this is what pleased him, as the happier, handsomer reindeer who teased him. As night and a fog hid the world like a hood, he went to bed hopeful he knew he'd been good. While way, way up north on this same foggy night, old Santa was packing his sleigh for his flight. This fog, he complained, will be hard to get through. He shook his round head and his tummy shook too. Without any stars or a moon as a compass, this extra dark night is quite likely to swamp us. To keep from collisions, we'll have to fly slow. To keep our direction, we'll have to fly low. We'll steer by the street lamps and houses tonight in order to finish before it gets light. Just think how the boys and girls' faith would be shaken if we didn't reach them before they awaken. Come Dasher, come Dancer, come Prancer and Vixen. Come Comet, come Cupid, come Donner and Blitzen. Be quick with your suppers, get hitched in a hurry. You too will find fog a delay and a worry. And Santa was right, as he usually is. The fog was as thick as soda's white fizz. Just not getting lost required old Santa's skill. With street signs and numbers more difficult still. He tangled in treetops again and again and barely missed hitting a three-motored plane. He still made good speed with much twisting and turning, as long as the street lamps and house lights were burning. At each house, first noting the people who lived there, he'd quickly select the right presents to give there. By midnight, however, the last light had fled, for even big people had then gone to bed. Because it might wake them, a match was denied him. Oh my, how he wished for just one star to guide him. Through dark streets and houses, old Santa fed poorly and now picked the presents more slowly, less surely. He really was worried for what would he do if folks started waking before he was through. The air was still foggy, the night dark and drear when Santa arrived at the home of the deer. Alleged that he tripped on while seeking the chimney gave Santa a spill and a painfully skinned knee. The room he came down in was blacker than ink. He went for a chair. He found it was a sink. The first reindeer bedroom was so very black, he tripped on the rug and fell flat on his back. So dark he had to move close to the bed and squint very hard on the sleeping deer's head before he could choose the right kind of toy, a doll for a girl, a train for a boy. But all this took time and filled Santa with gloom while slowly he groped towards the next reindeer's room. The door he'd just opened when, to his surprise, a dim but quite definite light met his eyes. The light wasn't burning. The glow came instead from something that lay at the head of the bed. And there lay, but wait now, what would you suppose? The glowing, you've guessed it, it's Rudolph's red nose. So this room was easy. This one little light let Santa pick quickly the gifts that were right. How happy he was till he went out the door. The rest of the house was black as before. So black that it made every step a dark mystery. And then came the greatest idea in all of history. He went back to Rudolph and started to shake him. Of course, very gently, in order to wake him. And Rudolph could scarcely believe his own eyes. You can just imagine his joy and surprise at seeing who stood there so real and so near while telling the tale we've already told here. 
poor Santa's sad tale of distress and delay, the fog and the darkness and the losing the way, the horrible fear that some children might waken before his complete Christmas trip had been taken. And you, he told Rudolph, may yet save the day. Your wonderful forehead may yet pave the way for a wonderful triumph. It actually might. Old Santa, you notice, was extra polite. To Rudolph, regarding his wonderful forehead, to call it a big shiny nose would sound horrid. I need you, said Santa, to help me tonight, to lead all my dear on the rest of our flight. And Rudolph broke out into such a big grin, it almost connected his ears to his chin. A note for his folks, he dashed off in a hurry. I've gone to help Santa, he wrote. Do not worry, said Santa. My sleigh, I'll bring it down to the lawn. You'd stick in the chimney and flash, he was gone. So Rudolph pranced out through the door, very gay, and took his proud place at the head of the sleigh. The rest of the night, well, what would you guess? Old Santa's idea was a brilliant success. And brilliant was almost no word for the way that Rudolph directed the deer and the sleigh. In spite of the fog, they flew quickly and low and made such use of the wonderful glow from Rudolph's um, forehead at each intersection that not even once did they lose their direction. While as for the houses and streets with a sign on them, they merely flew close so that Rudolph could shine on them to tell who lived where and just what to give whom. They'd fly by each window and peek in the room. Old Santa knew always which children were good and minded their parents and ate as they should. So Santa selected the gift that was right while Rudolph's uh, forehead just gave enough light. It all went so fast that before it was day, the very last presents were given away. The very last stocking was filled to the top just as the sun was preparing to pop. The sun woke the reindeer in Rudolph's hometown. They found the short message that he'd written down. They gathered outside to await his return and were they excited, astonished to learn that Rudolph, the ugliest deer of them all, Rudolph the red-nosed, bashful and small. The funny-faced fellow they'd always called names and practically never allowed in their games was now to be envied by all far and near. For no greater honor can come to a deer than riding with Santa and guiding his sleigh number one job on that number one day. Hey kids, you know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Yeah! Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Had a very shiny nose would even say it glows All of the other reindeer Used to laugh and call him names They never left for Rudolph Join in any reindeer Then one foggy Christmas Eve Santa came to say Rudolph with your nose so bright Won't you guide my sleigh tonight then how the reindeer loved him As they shouted out with glee Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer You go down in history
foggy Christmas Eve Santa came to say Rudolph with your nose so bright Won't you guide my sleigh tonight Then now the reindeer loved him As they shouted out with glee Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer Yes, that was a swinging version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer 